Well, uh, last week was the kind of um, first invitation into the wilderness, into the desert with Jesus as we journeyed into the Lenten season on the Christian calendar. And just as a reminder, the Christian calendar is our invitation to center our lives around the life of Jesus. And so as we look towards Good Friday and Easter, what kind of Easter do we want? We want an Easter where we've prepared. We've prepared for Jesus to make the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. We want to prepare to to celebrate the feast that comes with Easter, and that comes by fasting and preparation. I've got a new Lent devotional called Bread and Wine, which is unbelievable. It's on Amazon. I'm sure you could find it. But it says this about the Lenten season that I wanted to read to us to kind of get our minds right. It says, it's a time of preparation, a time to return to the desert where Jesus spent 40 days readying for his ministry. It is meant to be the church's springtime. Can you feel that? As, I know we lost an hour of sleep, but also like your, your days now get reordered in a, in a beautiful way uh, by sunlight. It is meant to be the church's springtime, a, a time when out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant and empowered people emerge. What a great way to to kind of invite us into Luke chapter four. If you'll remember last week, we read Matthew chapter four. It's a parallel passage where we, we see the same thing, that Jesus is being led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And what is he going to be tempted with? Well, to give us a hint at that is really our our subject for the day, and that is the identity that God gives us. And so I have a question for us. Who are you? Like, as Josue would say, when he says verily, verily, or truly, truly, for real, for real. Who are you? What makes you, you? There are lots of people trying to be somebody that they're not uh, when they project their persona, their, their, their best life now on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, on whatever it may be. They put their, their best face on, and that's the, the image that we see And so we're all trying to be the best version of ourselves with one another. And I can tell you, I have a confession to make. I've been struggling with a core identity of mine for probably the last year. Um, Last March, something happened, and uh, it's it's shaken our family when a little cat showed up at our front door. And her name was Marigold. And I told my daughter, Reese, I said, she's never met an animal that she doesn't like. She told me this week that she's going to get a bunch of rats for, um, for her pets in the future. I said, it's not gonna be anytime soon. But she, this, little, this little cat came to, my daughter is clapping in the back. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so this little cat came up to our front door and, and gave my daughter the, I would say the puppy eyes, but it was really the puss in boots eyes. You know, like they turn completely black and they purr a little bit. And um, I put a call out on Facebook and I said, honey, you can have it if no one claims this cat. So we put a call out on Facebook in our neighborhood no one claimed it and here we are, we have Marigold a year later. And here's the identity crisis that I have. I have been severely allergic, like snot, sneezing, allergic to cats my whole life. But here's the deal, like my daughter is still maturing into someone that's fully responsible for something else, and so she doesn't always feed this cat, and so I find myself taking care of this cat that I have sworn off since my childhood, and I find myself not just petting or not just feeding this cat, but I find myself in the dark, cold garage, letting, letting this cat purr against me and put its head on my 
shoes and on my jeans. And yes, I still wash my hands because it lives in the sewer sometimes. But I often wonder what is going on in the darkest corners of that garage. And this is the question that I'm struggling with is the core of my identity. Am I a cat person? Because I've always been a dog person. And when I look inside of a dog's eyes, I can see its soul. It, it loves things. When I look inside of a cat, I see a predator. And he's looking for weaknesses, or she is. That's all I see. But it's still something core to who I am. I'm going, man, am I a cat person now? Or am I still just a dog person? I gotta tell you, I like that cat. I pet that cat. Even though I know it lives in the sewer, I still, I still will pet it, and it will purr. My daughter's now giving me a good thumbs up. All right, I've won her approval. I can do all kinds of things. But I, I, I say that in a simple and silly way, like it's not the core of who I am. And yet, I think we are asking some pretty difficult and deep questions about the core of who we are when we start to read and journey into the desert with Jesus, when we start to read Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And so I come back to this question. It's a very existential question about who are you and what makes you, you. Is it nurture, is it nature? I mean, that's been like the topic of, of many a scientific journal or even psychological journal. Does your behavior shape your identity or is it the other way around? It is no understatement that today's sermon subject could be preached on for weeks. We're not gonna do that, um, but we'll try and like squeeze all the weeks into one. Um, but I'll say this, like before we go anywhere today, I want you to understand one thing. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've given it up to just live for yourself, to live on your own strength, to think that you are good enough somehow for the approval of the God of the universe. If you follow, if you, if you have come to the point where you repent, change your mind about how good you are and how holy you think God is and instead started to adopt the Bible standard for how sinful you are and how holy and good and faithful God is and you come to start believing in that good news that the God of the universe left heaven to come to you. You didn't do anything to deserve it but died for your sins so that you may have life. If you've come to the point where you believe in that good news, that he is risen today, reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father, sent his spirit to now indwell you, live in you, to empower you. If you believe in this good news, y'all, Father is fully pleased with you. We just prayed before we came in here as a team, and one of the things that we remind ourselves every week is, we don't have to do this for your approval. We're not doing it for your approval or your applause. We're not also not doing it so we can like conjure up some sort of a rain dance so that the Holy Spirit will come down. That if we just get good enough and we get more perfect enough that he'll come down. No, he's here in spite of our efforts, in spite of our best efforts, and in spite of our worst days. He is here. That's his promise. And we believe it in faith. And the other things that we believe in faith is that he is fully pleased with you, if you're a Christian, if you follow him, if you believe in him, he is fully pleased with you. Your identity is the beloved of the Father, a child of God. And I gotta tell you, 
This is the scary part where we're gonna camp out really for the next four weeks. Satan is hell bent. Hell bent on getting you to think otherwise. Okay? He is hell bent on attacking God by getting at his children and you have to ask yourself, why does he keep coming after us? After all, he lost. He will lose. What is he up to? He's here to kill and steal and destroy. That's what he's up to. We, we as God's children, dedicating our lives to, the, to God's glory as God's kids reminds him that in the end, he will lose. It is a, we are a stark reminder of his defeat, so it's no wonder that he wants to get at us. He wages war on our souls in subtle and yet substantial ways, and so I have to ask as we get going, if you were in a war, and you are, and you could get insight into what your enemy's tactics and strategies are going to be to get you to give up who you are, wouldn't you want to know what they are? Absolutely. So thank God that God has written these things down for us so that we can understand what it is that Satan is up to, what it is that he's up to in our hearts and in our souls. Because when we start to look at the way that he went after Jesus, we start to get a blueprint for how he's coming after us. So let me remind you of verses three. In verses nine of Luke four, where he says this, when he starts to tempt Jesus, and he says this, if you are the son of God. You see, Satan goes after our identity. He's going after who we are. He could care less about our behavior. He wants us to do bad things to disrupt and betray who God has already said we are. Well, why do I say that? If you look back a little bit in Luke, before the long genealogy, in Luke 3, 21, I think, or 22, it says this. Look at this beautiful declaration. Now, when all the people were baptized with John the Baptist, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened in 22 now, and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out from heaven. You wanna see where the Trinity is in the Bible? This is a great passage. The Father speaking to the Son with the power of the Spirit, now descending on the Son, and he says this, you are my beloved Son with you. I am well pleased. I want you to see this, y'all. Our identity is not based on our behavior, it is based on God's declaration of who we are. And the, 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 the proof is in what Jesus, how Jesus lived, and in the Father's declaration of who Jesus is. Jesus has not done any miracles yet in Luke 3. He's not done a thing. He hasn't fed the masses. He didn't bring back Lazarus from the dead. He didn't visit Zacchaeus' house yet. He hasn't told the parable of the lost son. He hasn't preached the Sermon on the Mount. No, God is making public a declaration over his son Jesus that you're my boy and I'm proud of you. See, what God declares in public, Satan will attack in private. The whole world now knew that God was pleased with Jesus and the first thing that happens is that he gets driven out into the desert where he's alone and that's where Satan does his worst work. It's in, it's in private, not in public. See, that's why we ended last week with where we ended, that we wanna be in solitude, not 
isolation because that's where the enemy does his most heinous work when he isolates you from other people, good, God-following people, so that he can get you to start thinking things about yourself like I'm the only one that deals with this. No one else will understand. And that's not true. We all deal with it. We all, most of us will purpose to understand unless somehow we're just being selfish. What God declares in public, Satan attacks in private. It's the same thing with Adam and Eve. We go back to not just uh, the new Adam's temptation in Jesus, but the first Adam's temptation in Adam. God created everything and declared it very good. In Genesis one and two, he created Adam and Eve. And the first thing he does is he gives them freedom. I love how the NIV puts it in Genesis 2, 16 through 18, through 17. It says, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden. I love that the first thing that God says to humanity is you're free. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Next verse, 17, right? But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That is a certain declaration amongst all creation to Adam and Eve and anything else that could listen. And then what happens? In private, when it's just Adam and Eve in the garden, one day this crafty serpent comes and in Genesis 3 it starts off with this crafty animal that goes to Eve. Not to Adam, but to Eve. And he says, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he doing? He's tempting Eve with behavior so that she will betray an identity that she already has. She's already made in the image of God. She's already like him. And he comes along and says, great, you've got that from God by faith on a promise. I want you to earn it by your behavior. And that's the trick. He confuses us. That's the trick is that he's gonna take away what God declares and promises to us And the way that he takes it away is by trying to offer something similar, a counterfeit by our own works and behavior. And so our identity has been switched up from the get-go. We have been made in the image of God if we would believe it, right? We are being remade in the image of God by by the Holy Spirit if we're believing. And Satan comes in and he wants to mess it all up and say, no, 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 he never gave you that. He's been holding that on you. You gotta become more like him and the way to do that is to do this. Something, anything outside of faith, outside of trust, outside of believing in the promises of God. And so here is what Satan does. Here are what we can just kind of narrow down what he does in a formula. You ready for a formula? Don't give me any formulas. Here's a formula. For all you math people out there, Satan's attacks equals confusion plus complacency plus bad company. What God made uh, obvious publicly, don't eat of this tree. He goes and he confuses you and he says, did he really say that? I mean, were you there, Eve? No, she wasn't. Adam was. Did he really say that? You don't know. I mean, he didn't say it to you, right? He said it to your husband. So you, I mean, really, you gonna trust him? You can see the conversation happening in the garden, right? There's confusion there. And so then he will add on to confusion complacency. 
You see, in verse six of chapter three, it says that she also, when she ate it, when she ate the fruit, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He did receive the command from God and he was sitting right next to her. I often wonder what was going through Adam's mind when his wife was talking to a serpent and she thought, you know what? Stink on this command. I know that God says I'm gonna die, but will I really? I wonder if Adam, just in complacency, is wondering, what does death look like? Maybe we can find that out. And it ain't gonna cost me, it'll cost her. God already made a woman out of my rib, I got, yep, we're good, we got more. You can see this kind of thought process that we all would have, right? We all would have this thought process, and so there's confusion, and then complacency, and then add to that bad company. Because after all, the leader of this family, this this first family, was sitting with her. Apathetic. Not standing in, not defending what was right, not, not relaying. No, 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 I was there, and he said it to me, and get out of here. You're not welcome. See, he lacked the strength, he lacked all sorts of things, and so she had the silent approval of her leader. And so I would ask you, Grove, where are you confused? Where have you become complacent in your faith? Um, Who has talked or quietly convinced you into simply believing that complacency and confusion are okay? When did you quit like trying to figure out the answers to your questions? Because I guarantee you, you've got them. I've got them. And the deeper I go into my walk with Jesus, the more profound and difficult the answers become. It all comes down to this one thing. Am I going to put myself at the center of this whole thing or am I gonna put God at the center? Am I gonna believe him or am I gonna take up some other way? Will I really believe in the stories of Jonah? Like in our neighborhood groups, we talked about this this last week when we talked about like, why do we believe that the scripture is the scripture? And some of those examples were like, do we really believe that Jonah was real? I mean, after all, that's a pretty tough one to, to, to believe. No, we just, we believe it's a fairy tale or we believe it's real? Well, what about Noah? We believe it's a fairy tale or we believe it's real? What about the talking serpent? We believe it's a fairy tale or is it real? What about the Virgin Mary? Some sort of myth or is it real? We start to explain away one thing and we're gonna start to explain away the rest. So the question becomes like, are we really going to trust God at his word or are we gonna be given into confusion and complacency? Because in that world, we'll find plenty of bad company that's cynical for cynical sake. And they don't ever get past the simple answer. They don't ever get past whatever Google fed them or what their boss fed them years ago. And God is inviting us to come to him for these answers because Chipotle Christianity is overrated, y'all. That we love and take and put on our burrito the love of Jesus. I love that he loves me and I'm just gonna lather up my burrito with that sour cream or whatever it is that you like. It's probably guac because it costs extra. That's the what I want on there. But I will leave, I will take that but I will leave the fact that he will take out wrath on those who will not believe. I'll leave that. Yes to following Jesus, no to dying to self. Yes to making Jesus uh, my world as long as he makes my world work. No to following him, especially when it doesn't. 
This is in our culture, right? I mean, most of our cultural wars are about our identity, about who we are, or what they say these days, the youngins. This is how I know I'm getting old when I start to refer to people as youngins. As the youngins start to say these days, how do you self-identify? So if you're a baby boomer, that's not a word that you use. That's not a phrase that you use. If you're a Gen Xer, you start to, you've started to hear it. If you're a millennial, you've definitely started to use it. And if you're Gen Z, man, it's all over the place. How do you self-identify? See, most cultural wars are not about behavior, but how we self-identify. Um, do you identify as a Republican or a Democrat? Did you go vote this last week? That's the first thing they asked you. Democrat or Republican. They want to know what your behavior is going to be based on how you identify. You can't be cheating this thing. If you're a homosexual or a heterosexual, how do you identify? What's your identity? Right? If you're black or white, if you're rich or poor, and so the core question isn't whether or not you're Republican, Democrat, homosexual, heterosexual, black, white, rich, poor, whatever it may be. The core question is what is at the center? Are we gonna be Christians first or are we going to put something else at the center? See, if we put something else at the center, our preference for anything at the core of who we are, particularly like a sexual preference at the core of who we are, then you are a heterosexual who is Christian and not a Christian who does heterosexual things. See, this poses many dangers to us. If we put American before Christian, we will start to identify ourselves as what Americans do before what Christians do. But if we put Christian before American, we do Christian things, whether or not it's American or not. Christ and culture. It's always been this war that we will have, but what is at the center of who you are? So let me bring up a very sensitive subject about sexuality. This is something that I know that we're all wondering about. I know that if we haven't had the conversation with our, our young kids, this is a great opportunity for us to have it because it's coming for them whether they are ready for it or not. But if we um, put our sexuality or the amount of our checking account or anything else at the center of who we are, we're in danger. That's exactly where the enemy wants us. And so I like I, I really struggled with this part of my sermon on what to talk about, what not, talked about, not to talk about because it's in everything, but I think there's a part of me that just weeps over those that are, are confused about their, their sexuality. Like I just weep because they have bought the line that your identity is something else besides what you believe about Christ. Above any other culture have they bought into the lie that they identify as something and therefore, because it's how I'm made, because it's who I am, I am justified in X, Y, or Z. And I, I weep over that because it's not true. Just like it would be untrue if I identified as a cookie monster. And I just really love cookies and so you can't deny my right to cookies. And I don't mean to make it so simple or so like harsh as if to simplify it in cookies and a sexuality, but they are appetites. They are behaviors, they're not identities. And so just as I might be prone to, to sexual sin that might be heterosexual, so must a person that might be prone to sin that might be homosexual, but that doesn't mean that's our identity. I'm not a heterosexual male. I'm a Christian first that does heterosexual male things. And that difference makes all the difference. 
and how we view ourselves and the conversations that we're open to. When I have this conversation or, or ever afforded the conversation to, to have with my sexually confused friends or family members, it goes sideways in a hurry because their identity is at stake in their mind. And I'm just, I weep over that because it's a lie. Their identity isn't at stake. And the enemy has convinced them as much as it has convinced someone like myself that if I put my identity in American and Republican and Democrat and white Caucasian male in the middle of the suburbs, if I put my identity in anything besides Jesus, I'm in danger. Homosexual, heterosexual, doesn't matter. Black, white, rich, poor, Presbyterian, Baptist, Episcopalian, Catholic, anything besides Jesus, we're in trouble. And so I, I truly, my heart breaks for those that are in the sexually confused community because they have bought this lie more than anyone else. And so at the core of who we are as Christians, if, if, if what we are as Christians matters that much, that, that much, what is it that we are? Who are we really? And I wanna read this quote to kind of introduce this point from J.I. Packer. He says this, if you wanna judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship all of life, and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. We, friends, are kids of grace. We are God's children. And just as God declared over Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, so does he declare it over you if you are a follower of Jesus. I wonder if we believe this about ourselves. I wonder if we believe that Jesus has, or that God, the Father, through the Spirit and Jesus, have declared over us that we are fully accepted in Christ. That no work will get us acceptance, not even baptism. Uh, this week on Thursday, the sun came out. My daughter Ellie and I were in the backyard. She was on the trampoline and she was doing homework, and I was on the slide and I was doing some work. We were just kind of hanging out. Felt like college with my nine year old. It was cool. And out of nowhere, she goes, Dad. I said, yeah. She goes, I'm afraid of going to hell. <laughs> um, yeah, well, let's put everything else away and let's talk. And I said, tell me more. And she goes, I just haven't been baptized yet. And I said, okay, well, tell me about that. She's like, I, I gotta get baptized and, and then I'll be able to get into heaven. And I said, sweetheart, sweetheart, let me, let me explain to you what's going on. Number one, she's trying to identify something else her, her, her identity is, is now being under attack based on her behavior or some act that she needs to do. But I just said, hey, girl, like, why are you my daughter? Did you do anything? Did you do anything to become my daughter? Nope, nope, you didn't do anything. Like, you just, there you are, and you're my daughter. And so by God's grace, God put you in our family. Now, is there anything in your whole life that you could do to not be my daughter? Is there anything you could sever that relationship? No. So just by God's grace did he bring you into this family and by God's grace will he keep you in this family? And she was like, okay. And after about 20 minutes, she looked at me and she goes, dad, that was a good talk. We should have more of those. <laughs> you got it, Ellie. I'm with you. 
And I think the reason why she appreciated that is because it took the pressure off. She doesn't have to be baptized in order to not go to hell. And how many of us, I wonder, have bought into a lie like that? I don't have to avoid certain behavior in order to get into heaven. No, instead, God is fully pleased with us because of who we are. This happens all throughout life. Like we are pleased with, pleased with our kids because of who they are, not because of, what, of their performance. When you go out on the baseball field, which many of us are doing, we go out on the softball field or the soccer field or dance or gymnastics or whatever it is that your kids do. Are you proud over all the kids? Are you just beaming with pride over all the kids? No. You're beaming with pride over yours. Why? Because they did awesome? Could be. They could nail it. But you know what? Another kid could nail it too. Would you be beaming with pride? You'd be impressed, but you wouldn't be beaming with pride. Beam with pride no matter if they succeed or fail because they're yours. In the same way does God beam with pride over us whether we fail or succeed because we're his. We're his. But what if you're not? And that same beaming with pride does not exist over you, friend. No, instead of a beaming with pride and love for you, no matter what happens, he is then now weeping over you like Jesus when he's riding into Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a, like a hen would gather her chicks. How I long to bring you close, but you would not. He weeps over what is lost. He weeps over the fact that one of his creation is in active rebellion against who he is, that somehow we've, we've become apathetic towards Jesus, that we don't need all that about Jesus, that somehow we've been convinced of our own goodness. No, God does not beam with pride over you. He loves you, but he weeps. He weeps for one of his beloved creation in the deepest danger of the darkest darkness, and like Jesus, he weeps over you. Oh, man. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that reality that if we're his, we're his, and if we're not, he's longing for you to come to him? My question is, will you go? Will you, will you heed the invitation to come to this Jesus who has paid for you, who will reorient your preferences, whether they be sexual or political or, or monetary or, or, or career or whatever? He will reorient those desires. Give it time. Are you up for that? Are you up for a different reality in a different life with a, a new truth? You wanna find your truth? The greatest truth you can ever find is the truth. His name is Jesus. And so maybe somewhere along the lines or somewhere along the road, we've forgotten this great invitation to come to him who longs to accept you, to bring you to family, to let you eat at table and rejoice at the great wedding feast that will be in the new creation, when he wipes away every tear, when there is no more pain. And if it's not this message, if this invitation isn't for you, I guarantee you it's for someone in your family. I guarantee you it's for someone that you love dearly, that you know. Their appetites have grown too strong. They've now rebelled against who God wanted them to be. And they must die to self in order to find life that is truly life. So where do we get all this? Where do we get these ideas? 
It's from the Father's voice, isn't it? Isn't it over the same voice that declared approval over Jesus? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And so whose voice will we trust? Google's? We trust our own voice. We trust our culture's voice. We, we trust Satan's voice. You see, our greatest comfort is God's voice. When that beams from heaven that we, we wish we were there that day to hear that. We often wonder, man, I wish I could have heard that. But friends, he demonstrated his love by dying for sinners like you and me. He cemented his love by sending his spirit to live inside of us. And then he ensured that we would know all about his love by giving us his word. How do we know all this is true? Because it says it right here. And so really all of life comes down to what we believe about Jesus, but it all comes down to really what we believe about this document. What do we believe about this? Will this have this position over our heads and over our hearts and over our lives and over our loves? Will it reign as supreme and authoritative because it's sourced in who God is? Or will it be just the same old thing on par with whatever Google has to say or my coworker or my dad or whomever? You see, are we, a pay, are we paying attention to this comforting voice because I'll say this, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of podcast after podcast, in the midst of everyone trying to get your attention, you will not just simply stumble upon the treasures that are in here. You're gonna have to go get it. So like last night, my wife and I went on a date. Beautiful. You know what we did for the first time in our history? We left our kids at home alone. Come on, baby. That's some freedom right there, y'all. Y'all don't even know. And we went out, we went to Lopez, we didn't go too far. Went to Lopez, and we just enjoyed just staring at each other's eyes without daddy, daddy, mommy, mommy, daddy, mommy. Ah! But you had to make the time. That ain't just gonna happen. And the same thing, if, a, if that's true about our marriages, if that's true about quality time with our kids, how much more the time that we must carve out to be with our God. And you might think to yourself, I don't know where to start. Pick one of these up. Read the scriptures for this week. Think about what God is saying to you because I'll give you some hints. Are you ready? This is what God says about you, friend. If you're a believer, if you follow Jesus, this is the th these are the treasures that we can just bathe in. You ready? I'm not gonna bring up the, the scripture references. I just wanna just speak these truths over you and then we'll be done. Friends, you are fearfully and wonderfully made out of Psalm 139. You have been given rights to become his children out of John 1. You are no longer condemned, Romans 8.1. You are sung over and delighted in, Zephaniah 3. You are no longer slaves. You are friends. You are blood-bought, purchased sons and daughters, John 15, Galatians 3 and 4. You are new creation, the old Ain't welcome here anymore. Second Corinthians, oh, Ephesians 1 and 2. You wanna just dig in and just take a big, deep bath in the oceans deep of grace? Just read Ephesians 1, baby. So then, look at that. You are chosen, holy, blameless, predestined. You don't believe in predestination? Believe in the Bible. It's one of the most comforting truths that God would choose you before the foundation of the world, before you were good or bad. He had you in his mind, Nicole and Alex and whomever else that I don't know in this room. He had you in mind. 
He keeps going in Ephesians 1. These are all the beautiful spiritual blessings that he has for us. He poured out his love on us, adopting us, redeeming us, pouring out the riches of his grace, God lavishing us with his love. And it says in all wisdom and insight. That means he knew what he was getting when he got you. He didn't bring you home from the store and go, oh, this is double A battery? I thought it was triple A. I gotta go back. He knew exactly what he was getting when he got you. You are sealed by the ever-present, indwelling spirit. God lives in you? Are you okay? That's amazing. We are forever accepted, forever loved, never forgotten, and never abandoned. So it is then no wonder, my friends, that when we talk about being missionaries in our city, we have the greatest news empowered by the most powerful person, that's the spirit, in us to Give us resurrection power, Romans 8, to be ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, or witnesses, Acts 1, to our neighborhoods, networks, and the nation. And now I'm sweating because I'm happy about it. This is good news, y'all. The greatest news that was ever written down for the pre like preserving our lives. So when we say go out in the desert where Jesus is, yeah, it's going to be scary. It's going to be lonely. You go do it. It's worth it. I would never stand up here and tell you to go do something hard, just go do something hard. Who cares about that? There is great treasure and great reward if we would just simply purpose to be with the one that's purposed to be with us. See, it's no wonder that we have this great news to bring to a world around us that has given into the lie that they only amount to what they can do. They only amount to how much efficiency they can bring to a company. They only amount to their appetites. They only amount to how much money they make, to what their appetite produces, to if they're married or single or successful or a failure or, or, or somehow associated with whatever culture it may be. And all of this, friends, pales in comparison to being known and be loved by the God of all, Lord of all, and Savior of all who would believe. And so, friends, at the Grove... Do not let the enemy in where he does not belong. He will tempt you with behavior, but it's only to get you to do things to deny who you are. And who you are is greater than you ever imagined because of who Christ is, who Christ was on your behalf and now lavishes you with it. Just dumps grace upon grace upon grace upon you to change you, to bring you into the family and to dine and be with you forever. Be firmly rooted, church, in the identity that God has given you, not the one that you can secure on your own. Could you imagine if Jesus didn't hear the voice for all of us that don't wanna read God's word or trust God's word or, or simply be with the Lord, could you imagine where we would be and where Jesus would be if he went into the desert and he didn't have the public declaration of his identity? What kept him rooted for 40 days and 40 nights to not do like turn a stone into bread? That doesn't seem like a sin to me. What's the temptation? Provide for yourself, not trust God. Could you imagine the declaration? If there's no declaration, there is no victory in the desert, much less on the cross. And so will we be a people that remember 
God's declaration over us. I pray we will. I pray that this is just me getting motivated and all sweaty on a Sunday morning, that we would truly just dive in and understand who God has declared for us to be. Let's pray. Let's give God thanks. We love you. Here's what I know. As soon as we get silent, Lord, the enemy starts to come in and go, I didn't like that part. That part about homosexuality or that part about sexual preference or that part about being the cookie monster or that part about this or about that. Lord, wipe the slate clean in our hearts that we may receive what you have for us. Whatever we were offended by, I pray, Lord, that it's the gospel and not anything else. Pray that just that offense brings us and draws, draws us near and close to the God who loves us far more than any lover could ever promise or purpose to do. That it's out in the desert that you declare that you will call out to us and call us husband. Or that we will call you husband, rather. That you will speak intimate words to us and that we will be formed into your people. And so just as you declared over your son Jesus, I pray that you declare in our hearts by the presence of your spirit. Remind us who we are. Remind us that we are not bound to production, to people, to pace. But during this season of Lent, we would be reminded of your presence and your posture of goodness, of faithfulness, and that you, oh God, are for us. You're not just with us, waiting for us to stumble and fail and go, so you can just laugh at us. No, you're for us. You see us stumbling and failing. You say, get up, man. Get up, girl. You got this. You can do this. My son Jesus is enough for you. You keep believing. You keep trusting. You keep following in the dark. And I'll guide you. I'll be your reward beyond what you can see. I'll, I'll be there. Help us remember these things. Help us respond in these ways. And so we love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.